This is Under Futures, a podcast from the team at Changist, digging into underexplored futures. I'm your host, Scott Smith, and joining me is Madeline Ashby, science fiction writer and futurist. Talk back to us here on Anchor.fm or on Twitter at Underfutures, all one word. Our first episode is about the future of citizenship, access, and belonging. Hi, Madeline. Hi, Scott. Welcome to Under Future Episode 1. We're finally doing this. Yes, we are. Um, and as a start, I should wish you a happy 2019 because I doubt we'll talk before uh, the new year. So uh, happy 2019. And also probably the same goes for everyone who's listening to this because it will get posted tomorrow night if I'm productive. I will definitely talk to you tomorrow. Probably so. If I know us, we'll be we'll be co-watching some inappropriate horror film um, <laughs> over over several thousand kilometers. Yeah, um, yeah. we we will definitely be flipping on a hammer but, horror thing. But but enough about us. Um, <laughs> thanks to the uh, thanks to the one hundred and seventy ish people who followed us on Twitter on the strength of just a few tweets sent only one time about this podcast. So um, that's very gratifying to know that there are that many people who are curious uh, to see what's going to go down. So um, that's fantastic. But uh, for the first episode, um, we are talking about a topic that's been, um, that's been circulating, I guess, for a couple of years now uh, within the, the, the different elements of work that we do, but also is, is very uh, pertinent to, I guess, us as individuals, but also the sort of time we're in right now. And that's the issue of uh, citizenship and not just citizenship, but kind of belonging and access uh, and, and all of these sorts of issues. Um, neither of us lives in the country of our passport. Am I correct? Um, yes. We're both U.S. passport holders, but I'm living in the Netherlands. You're living in Canada. Um, Susan is living here in the Netherlands. Uh, Lily Higgins, who works with us, is uh, an American citizen living here in the Netherlands. We tend to work with people who either end up having dual passports or otherwise living somewhere else than where they started from. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's I don't know what to make of that other than the fact that we're um, – reasonably privileged people and the work that we do takes us to a lot of different places. Um, but well, this is a, this is a moment in time that, that a lot of issues are kind of coming up around this idea of kind of access and citizenship. I'm sorry, go on. Well, I, th I think it does say something about us that, that there's definitely a thing about getting outside the subject or getting outside of, of the frame um, and, and looking back in. And taking that when we when we do our work, I think we both bring that that perspective of having been outside when we when we come to when we go back and do work in the States or when we go back and sort of write documents or whatever. I think that having been outside gives a very different perspective when you're when you're doing any sort of commentary or when you're doing any sort of trends analysis, really, because you're you're no longer steeped in it in the same way. No, I think that's very relevant. I, I remember having this conversation a few years ago with a, a colleague who's a, an ethnographer more full time uh, professionally, and we both kind of realized how much we relied on being outside of the cultures that we actually work within to do the work that we do and to be able to kind of observe it in a, in a somewhat rational, detached 
fashion. Um, well, one of the one of the things I love about being at your house is when uh, is is being ahead of the the Eastern Standard news cycle. I'm no longer steeped in in that you know EST you know Twitter feed of of what's been broadcast and what's breaking news and so on and so forth. So I I really like being six hours ahead of it because you just feel really appropriately distant. <laughs> I would I would agree that our house and office are appropriately distant and uh, <laughs> and they have their own time zones so there is that uh, but I think also yeah so professionally we we tend to we tend to kind of circulate outside of our outside of our, our kind of space of origin um, but it's also uh, we we all rely on and an increasing number of people rely on the ability to gain access to certain um, systems and societies and to, to be able to kind of cross borders. Um, in ways that no longer just mean showing your passport, but then, you know, now there are so many different potential um, kind of services or platforms, and we'll talk about platforms later on, but 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 platforms that you're able to kind of exist on. Um, if you can hear this sort of tapping sound, that's my as yet unboxed um, Estonian e-residency kit. Um, which I actually picked up a couple of weeks ago at the Estonian embassy here in the Netherlands as a U.S. citizen. So it was kind of a, a Russian doll of of cascading memberships. Um, but this is kind of an unusual uh, object or, or or service, right? That it's it's for those people who don't know about it. It's I think they've just reached their third or fourth birthday uh, as a program. But basically, there are half a million people around the world who have applied for and successfully received um, their Estonian e-citizenship, which is, or e-residency, I should say, which is a, a, a essentially a, a digital signature. It's an opening in the, in the firewall of the, the nation of Estonia um, to give you the ability to enact, interact and enact business inside the country, to open a bank account, to set up a company, you're not allowed to actually go and live there with this um, yet. yet. <laughs> um, and I'm not sure that, that that will eventually ever happen, but uh, which is a, a talking point for a moment. Um, but but why, did you ch- why did you choose to do this? I guess for a couple of reasons. So the, the, the program emerged a few years back, um, actually back when I was still living in the U S mm. um, and I was, curious about it as a uh, because we were we were looking at moving the company back internationally again um and it was an interesting new innovation on the horizon at that point but it was also very unformed um it it still was just uh, a means of of executing a digital signature inside the legal structure of Estonia as a country, mm-hmm. but Estonia mm-hmm. has also given us things like Skype, um, and some people may be familiar with TransferWise, which is a peer to peer foreign exchange platform that's been very successful. Um, as a country, it kind of markets innovation uh, and forward thinking as a as a uh, as an idea as a brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was curious about it as a mechanism, um, having done a lot of work around digital identity. So but, you wanted to have the experience as yeah. much as, as Part- much as having the residency, having the experience of having applied for it. Was yes, and that, and, yes. Yeah. And that's very I think that's very common in 
and what all of us do as a group, right? Yeah. We, we tend to sort of, you know, stick our toes or, or appropriate appendages into whatever new experience is there <laughs> to kind of to, <laughs> to understand what it, what it actually means, right? And and yeah. What it entails. Um, but since then, you know, in the, in the ensuing four years, not only has it grown in terms of population, um, it also has added uh, kind of capability. Now you can start a business uh, and run it within the country from outside. So there are people who are using it as a means of having a presence in the Eurozone um, you know, to be able to, to operate within the, the sort of European marketplace. Which was more difficult, getting this, getting the Estonian e-residency or your Dutch residency? Oh, definitely getting a Dutch residency because um, it, it entails physically living in the country and also, you know, contributing to it economically, whereas the, mm. the Estonian one is still a little bit prospective. It's, it's you know, it's not it, it's not counting on that being the case and it's not sort of taking the traditional um the traditional view of uh, a migrant existing physically, legally, and economically within a country. No, well, I think that I think that you know we are f- we are now facing a time when your national identity or when your uh, when your when your identity in terms of where you live is defined as much by a country's brand as anything else. And part of a country's brand is sort of the memes that go around it, the, the ideas that persist. And I, you know, it's very tempting to think of that as a new idea that, you know, now that we have Facebook, we have all these memes and now, and, and so on and so, and so forth, but that's not true. It has been very well branded for, a very long time. Um, in fact, the I would argue that the entire sort of entertainment industry is part of that branding. You know, uh, it pushes, it helps push the idea of what America is, and that's true of other countries as well. You know, the, the it's no accident that that there are many many BBC murder mysteries about tiny little towns that all voted to leave the EU. The it's part of the national branding and that's part of the meme of what a country is. And sometimes when you don't have people hooked in via any other means, when you can't attract them any other way, them the things that would ordinarily keep a person in a relationship, you can attract them via a meme. And you can cohere a community around an idea or around an identity that is spread virally through image, through sound, through talking points, through narrative. Right. And I guess, you know, as you said, the American dream was kind of the, the, the meme for the previous, you know, X number of, right. of decades yeah. or, or, or centuries. And then, of course, you know, what's going on with Britain and Brexit right now is very much a kind of you know, it's a mimetic battle, right? It's a conflict between kind of re reconstituting uh, former glory or trying to project that into the future. And I think this is where it gets really interesting. You're trying, you're seeing a kind of struggle for future national identity and then how that's expressed technologically as well as economically. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. When we think about it in terms of, in terms of England is, is England the gherkin? Or is England rolling green hillsides dotted with cattle? Right. You know, which is it? And that's and that's that's what the vote was about. 
you know, it's it's and who gets to live there? Who gets to participate in that? And it's even I mean, if you, which of these images is accurate yeah. and who gets to share in them? And if you listen to to some of the more kind of hardcore pro-Brexit advocates, they are actually reaching to to kind of appropriate the Singapore meme, right? That that Britain mm-hmm. will become a, mm-hmm. a, a low, you know, low taxation, low regulation, um, you know, ultra capitalist island off the coast of a continent. Um, and so in a, in a funny way, it's kind of, yeah, it's basically, it's basically yeah. cribbing. What well, goes else. around, comes around. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> but also, I think everything just, old is new. It's is. interesting in the Estonia case, um, because I mean, they've actually said this explicitly in a couple of different places that I've noticed. One is, you know, and and some write ups of the program on on the platform medium, but also it features in the new. Uh, there's a, a a paper that's been issued recently in the past month by the government um, outlining their vision for the program and and, and the next version. Um, the what they call you know kind of e e residency two and. Mm-hmm. Say explicitly that um, you know the, the the certainly the recent history of Estonia has been one of um, you know uh, control by an external power by Russia by the Soviet Union um, and concern that you know even though it's an independent nation now that they continue to be under threat and that the more people who can become that they can. Um, get invested in the country as an idea as well as as a legal and economic and political structure the more people who will be uh, invested in concern should something happen to them they will be remembered they will be known um you know if if conflict comes again yeah i think that that's that's a that's a very familiar idea to me as someone who lives in canada there's there's a constant sort of uh another meme i guess but a constant urge within within canada or or a drive within canada to prove that it's a real country um there's there's uh when i first moved here people you know some of my friends who still lived in in the states said like that's even a real country and in fact it is a real country but that but their attitude was that it was sort of like america with no disneyland it's it's this it's it's a it's it's sort of like this little this little brother to to the united states or this sort of diminutive version or this i don't know uncanny valley version of of america and in a lot of ways it is the uncanny valley version of america it's just that people have health care uh the but the drive that urge uh within among canadians or within canadian media in particular and within canadian policy is to sort of prove that they're that a Canada is a real country, and B that it has its own culture, and that's where there's a a huge. That's where those. That's where that clash happens. Is does Canada have a culture, and what does what does it even look like? Um, but there's that need to remind people that it exists, in part because it faces a lot of the same same issues. It's it's bordered by a much larger, more population dense country that has a much longer martial history, and I think that reminding people that it's still around is part of the national project. I don't think it's an accident that after the 2016 election, Justin Trudeau did a huge sort of, you know, kissing babies tour in the United States. 
he was there reminding people that Canada still exists as NAFTA was being renegotiated. And he was there on a charm offensive. And so were other members of the Canadian government. They went to governors directly rather than trying to appeal to the federal government of the United States. They went to, to uh, you know, governors whose industries would be impacted by NAFTA. Right. And by changes to NAFTA, and they went there on a term offensive and said, look how nice we are. We're the polite ones. Remember us? We're so polite. Well, after the 2016 election, I think I recall there being some ads that were being run in various places in the web um, that were almost like a, you know, an airline. Uh, I first, I think you would mistake them for Air Canada ads, uh, but they were basically <laughs> kind of, you know, this is Canada. Welcome. You know, please migrate here. Um, well, and, and that and that has borne out that 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 worked. That campaign worked as H-1B visas have been more and more difficult to get in the United States. Speaking of visas and residency, um Canada has seen this massive uptick of people who, in particular in tech and, and technology-related fields, who are coming over from China, from India, from, from other places to live here instead, to work here instead. They, won't, they don't make the same amount of money that they would have, but they can still bring their families. And there is an argument to be made that you know being able to bring your spouse and your children over is sort of priceless compared to what you – compared to – you know, what you might be making it at, uh, you know, Google in the U.S. Um, but that, yeah. you know, a lot of that's contingent on the idea of physical movement, right? Which, you know, mm-hmm. is yeah. when you're starting to think about the future of citizenship and residency, um, it may not necessarily be physical uh, existence. I mean, right now, I mean, it's, it's similar to the dynamic that's happened with offices, right? You no longer have to go mm-hmm. into an office. You have the digital representation of an office or, you know, where you're dragging and dropping files ostensibly across servers that are in many, many different jurisdictions. Um, and so, right. I mean, the the some of what's embedded in this Estonia 2.0 plan points to this is a couple of interesting bits that are that are kind of tucked away in this paper but jumped out at me immediately and the first was um you know looking forward one of the things they're thinking about is the idea of extending the social safety net of the country to digital nomads that's their phrase digital nomads the idea that there are you know or there are um you know many people around the world who are kind of in a floating you know position uh moving between countries working in different countries they you know you almost artificially choose a tax residency or an income residency but otherwise you know there's that there are uh, every year an increasing number of people who are just slipping between countries who have the 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 freedom and the ability to do that um but that means that they're foregoing a, a, a fixed um, a fixed social safety net, a, a fixed kind of, a, you know, affiliation with a, a single country and its and its kind of uh, social support structure. And in this case, they're talking about enabling e-citizens that fit that profile without a fixed long-term national residency to access things like miracle of miracles, healthcare, um, that you might be able to uh, tap the, the health insurance structure of that country while not being resident in it uh, also things like travel insurance and pension um, I you know they see an interesting opening there for people who are are kind of constantly hopping between jurisdictions and hopping between countries um, well I think we both yeah we both know 
just exactly that. We we know between us more than a few people who don't live anywhere, who sort of float in between places. And that's in part, I would say, you know, and I think we're going to see more of that in part because of things like the housing crisis. As housing gets less and less affordable, the long-term investment in permanence, in a permanent residence or in a permanent place to, to live grows less and less attractive. You know, why would I stay in this place where it's where it's only going to get less affordable and my risk will only increase? Why would I stay in a place where I can go underwater on my mortgage if the interest rate bumps, you know, half a percentage point? And and so I think you you are going to see more of these people for whom an option like this becomes more attractive. But jumping to, no, I was going to oh, say go jumping ahead. to another kind of element that's that's interesting in this paper is so one of these these ideas is you know in the future you may have countries extending their um, their most you know attractive attributes whether that's um, you know. Uh, health coverage or a pension or education access or human rights protection but these things or, or clean, clean water, or, clean water um, or any number of things might be extended beyond national borders but the other one was sort of what what could be let in not what could be extended beyond but what could be let in right. and one of those things was um, the idea that uh, algorithms and in artificial intelligence uh, you know, as constituted by a particular chunk of code uh, or hardware, software might be, a lot, you know, kind of given safe harbor um, in that country, that it would allow a kind of e-citizenship to algorithms or e-citizenship to, to, to AI. Well, I mean, really, it's it's not an it's not a bad idea. It's not an and it's not an unusual idea. Um, and it's an idea. I think the the personhood of artificial intelligence or the or the sort of personhood for the purposes of statecraft uh, for artificial intelligence is a thing that we are going to have to grapple with. And I would say that most countries have had to grapple with that in one way, shape, or form. I actually was on the phone with someone, uh, with a researcher the other day, uh, who was sort of, he was sort of picking my brain about, about AI because I've written books about killer robots and we got to talking about this and I he asked me you know like do you think that this is going to become an issue and I said well it's already an issue because we are still legislating at what point life begins we are still having a conversation about when life starts and if you think that can't be that conversation can't be extended to artificial intelligence I have a bridge to sell you right the and further, you know, it's not as though it's not as though America didn't go to war over who counts as a person. This yeah. is true. Is is an algorithm three fifths of the man? Well, in this case, I mean, you've already had um, you know several countries in a kind of you know glib demonstration fashion grant citizenship to you know a robot or to AI to an AI, and mm -hmm. you know these are these are obviously kind of um, stunts to, you know, to kind of draw attention to the innovative culture of country A or country B. But I think it's going to be much more of an issue when you think about, um, you know, in a way it's kind of analogous to, to talent wars, right. To, to kind of brain drain mm -hmm. to different countries competing over, 
um, the best and brightest or competing over research. You know, who's going to hire the most PhDs coming out of university? Um, the U.S. has been turning away PhDs from from foreign countries. You know, who once you graduate the program, you're set on your way. UK has been doing the same thing in a kind of reverse brain drain. Um, but you know, this this is not altogether a, a a superficial idea if you're looking to create a kind of sandbox for development uh, for for artificial intelligence. Um, well. That and also, I mean, I think there's a speaking of the nationalism by speaking of nationalism by meme. When we talk about things like algorithmic bias, when we talk about things like a decision making process and an individually individually developed neurally networked decision making process, you're talking about what is valued. You're talking about a value system and there are countries that will preserve certain value systems and decision-making processes over others and by the same token could grant asylum to those decision-making processes and and values i think that when we when we talk about like you know granting citizenship or granting rights to a thing to an intelligence that emerges uh organically but not biologically then we start talking about what we want, what we value, and what we want to preserve, and that's always been part of the nationalist project. Or, or what aligns with national values or, or kind of local cultural mm-hmm. values. I mean, this mm-hmm. has come up in you know the different the different um, kind of decision frameworks or or you know moral and ethical frameworks that on, on top of which um, AIs are being developed in say China versus the U.S. You know what does society value? Right, right. Does society value you know person A or B in the trolley problem in in this country versus that country? Um, does it 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 um, you know prioritize one issue over the other? So I think, you know, one of the things that's going to be interesting is trying to understand whether countries are um, are privileging access, not just to people, but things that look more like patents, things that are processes, mm-hmm. things that are that are, um, you know, encoded ideas as as opposed to kind of embodied intellect. Um, and that's where it starts to get really, really interesting because you're not just talking about, you know, citizenship and identity and a kind of legal structure around, um, individual human, uh, you know, humanity, but you're talking about, you know, establishing some kind of, uh, of citizenship regime for, for concepts, um, that have you know, greater well, yeah, or lesser value. I mean, yeah. I think that, you know, the, what we, what I am willing to bet we will at some point need to confront is the question of whether you can send a form of artificial intelligence to the Hague for trials. Right. When one of these things commits a war crime or a crime against humanity or is complicit in a genocide or, is, or, or assists in the eradication of, of an entire segment of a population – what is the legal responsibility and can you effectively delete a process like that? You know, what is the, you know, how do you execute that? How do you put that on trial? Right. And we're going to have to find out. In what time frame? You know, and that's the, that's the flip side of personhood is responsibility. Right. Exactly. Um, so let's, let's kind of flip this 
back around again. And I mentioned earlier uh, in our discussion platforms and platform citizenship, um, which, uh, you know, if, if I think I, we, we got nationalism by meme from you, um, plat- platform <laughs> citizenship is definitely something that, that probably, um, probably comes from my side of the table. And, and it was this idea that, um, you know, that, that people are not just creating, you know, affinities or affiliations for, or, or sort of, attachments to nation states, but also to the types of platforms that are now as powerful as some nation states, like, you know, a Facebook um, or, Mm -hmm. you know, or or an Amazon or some other kind of, you know, mega platform that is both global. I mean, Facebook still, even though it's, you know, had a very difficult year, I think it still probably has, you know, north of a billion and a half, two billion people around the world that have some kind of attachment mm-hmm. to it. Um, yes. I think it's, isn't it the, the, you know, the Danes, Denmark that has, uh, you know, sort of appointed a government ambassador to Silicon Valley to actually represent it to these powers that are in some cases more powerful than, than some countries. Um, but the idea that, that you have an affiliation that grows more strongly to the non-state platform than to the, the nation state itself. Um, well, yeah, yeah. I think that when anytime a state fails, or anytime there's a there's a moment or a or an area in which a state fails, that's where private industry always tries to step in as much as it can, and that's where you get the idea of a company town or uh, or or a platformed city or a smart city that that sort of tries to do all the things that a municipality or that a governmental service should be doing, but might not be doing, you know, um, if, if, if GM had said, well, what we're going to do is buy the entire city of Flint and we'll provide the clean water, you know, that's not outside the realm of possibility. And there are probably people who would have signed on for it. As long as they could, you know, finally drink the water and make sure their kids were safe, you know, that's the the public private partnership um, can go more private than public very quickly. And when we talk about participating in a platform, a thing via which we establish our identity, you know, I'm real because I have a Facebook page or I'm real because I'm, you know, because I gave Twitter my real name and showed them the absurd number of documents that they ask for, for, you know, quote unquote, verified status. You know, suddenly you are participating at a level that has to do with not just the identity that you've created, but the thing that is verifiable. And and you're giving them essentially the same documents that you gave Estonia when you applied for the e-residency. It's a way to ascertain your own reality and your own existence and, and personhood in a different way, but you have to do it under with under rules that are not laws and which can change like any terms of service at any time. Well, in each of these cases, what you're seeing is a kind of, you know, migration towards the most um, 
stable <laughs> and funded and well-resourced um, services, which, you know, in part is what some of what a nation state provides to its, to its residents and its citizens. Um, you know, we saw this in, in the previous decade in places like India, where, you know, you've got infrastructure that's failing in certain towns and cities, but, you know, whoever the largest and most powerful, um, you know, call center company or software developer, our technology company or industrial concern in the area was, it's the one that's providing the buses, the one that's providing, you know, sort of stable electrical services, et cetera. And of course, you know, flash forward to the, the middle of this past decade, you know, the conflict over the Google buses and the Yahoo buses in Silicon Valley, right. That you had kind of privileged infrastructure right. inside another jurisdiction um, so that, you know, from their boot up on Google cloud in the morning, all the way through their ride to work, um, you know, well-provisioned uh, office space, food, exercise, you know, probably some, you know, minimum form of education for kids, you know, and daycare. And now, yeah, of course, daycare. we hear this from yeah. from the founders of WeWork, right? That it, the, the idea of moving beyond just uh, co-working spaces, um, but actually extending to, you know, learning into other kinds of community services that can be built on a platform that's as big as um, physically, you know, as big as uh, something like WeWork uh, becomes, uh, you know, a sort of stepping stone in this idea of kind of privatized, um, privatized platform citizenship inside another another state um and you know and and what right. power comes with that for the platform provider um i think some of the the kickback or the pushback that was going on with amazon's you know hq2 their headquarters search um finally you know arriving at crystal city virginia and uh you know just outside of new york city i think long island city the you know the the pushback from residents, particularly in New York, saying, look, we've got, you know, our subway barely works. We've got a failing infrastructure there. And yet you're going to give tax breaks. And, you know, inevitably, there's going to be kind of prioritization of of uh, provisioning of certain services and, and assets to those private headquarters and the communities that grow around them, you start seeing these kind of, I think Christopher Mims, the Wall Street Journal called them kind of superstar cities, right? There's this kind of platform mm -hmm. cities within cities that emerge that basically suck up resources and, and take uh, resources from the rest of the community who are in fact citizens, residents, taxpayers, et cetera, in those areas. Well, it's, it's colonialism by any other name, right? You know, it's establishing a colony. It's, it's treating the existing city structure as a wilderness that needs to be cleared and redeveloped. Or it's treating the existing infrastructure as a, a barren Martian landscape that needs to have a bunch of habit trails dug into it. Um, some cases, in some cases, literally in the, in the case of subways, um, we're seeing this in Toronto right now. There's a huge debate over the role of sidewalk labs within Toronto and then they're, they decided to build a prototype city here. They bought up, you know, 
areas downtown and in the portlands bordering the lake they promised to redevelop them they entered into a relationship with with the city of toronto and we've been seeing this more and more in toronto specifically that that more and more companies are sort of you know not just since 2016 but even earlier sort of you know responding to the idea of of building these prototype spaces by saying well what if we could have an american city pre-2001 that we could prototype all of our products in what if we had a test bed or a sandbox that we could sort of conduct our experiments in on in this uncanny valley america and that's why you get things like a, a sidewalk lab city that's why you get you know a bunch of different com- uh, companies like samsung etsy others building all the all these innovation labs up here because not only is it a friendlier visa situation to go back to those brass tacks but also it's sort of this this ideal test bed um However, what Sidewalk is finding out with Toronto is that Canadians have a very different perspective in terms of what they are owed with regards to data privacy and other things like that. And whether or not that city actually grows, whether it becomes the city within the city or the city and the city, to to use the Mieville term, um, remains to be seen. And I think we're going to see the same debates happening in Crystal City and uh, or what are they calling it? Like. America's landing or, or something like <laughs> National that. National landing. landing? Yes. National yeah. landing? National landing? <laughs> like, my God, really? <laughs> and uh, just – Crystal City is a beautiful name. It sounds like something out of Sailor Moon. Well, I, I think in a, in a recent project, <laughs> you and I, uh, um, speaking of provocations, kind of lightly imagined as one element of it, um, the, you know, Amazon Prime as a kind of extended citizenship just beyond, beyond just a, a kind of customer loyalty program and some, you know, advantages and privileges of faster shipping or lower prices or, you know, access to fresh chickens at Whole Foods, but... Uh, which, which just saying it that way sounds sounds like you know, a soiling green too. But just say breadline. Um, Why don't you just say breadline? Well, breadline TM might be something in the future. But I think this idea that you know you could see a decade down the road something like prime membership being more like a type of services and infrastructure passport. Like, what is prime membership going to get you in ten years? that it's not getting you now. And I guarantee you somewhere in there, it's going to be priority access to critical infrastructure and resources. Oh, absolutely. In in a way beyond a discount on Alexa dot, you know, Amazon dot right now. Um, Well, yeah. I mean, I I think that that's, that's been the secret dream of everything from AAA to the to credit card companies to frequent flyer points uh, to free to the frequent flyer systems you know the idea that that providing you know that that by providing enough services or providing enough benefits providing enough spiff enough freebies enough points loyalty systems uh, that you could hook people into an entire brand identity and into, into an entire way of life is has always been attractive uh, to membership systems, and they've always tried to to create that. Whether it's you know AAA or Visa or uh, you know Star Alliance or Club Med or you know or even the sort of like even Soho House or or whatever, like the idea that that they step in to provide you these extra things 
and the more they provide you, the more that you use it, and the more that you use it, the more you depend on it. I think that's been part of a, a long-term project, but I think that now that we're we're approaching, you know, physical infrastructure in the city, now we're looking at making that a reality. Right, and and of course, when you get to physical infrastructure, then you start thinking about you know kind of critical services, environmental control, health, you know, things mm-hmm. things that mm-hmm. that are must-haves. Uh, you know, we saw this at Christmas, right? People not able to turn on the lights in their house because they were trying to install you know the new Philips Hue light or whatever kind of connected IoT service. They had gotten, you know, as a happy gift under the Christmas tree, suddenly becomes a, <laughs> a, an inability to actually illuminate the rooms, you know, 1880 style. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. you, you know, you, you can imagine or you can, you know, project, forecast um, some of the complications that will come from, you know, the increasing embrace of these of this platform citizenship around um, the types of services that, that we need. And I think... Um, you know, or this sort of keep communities going. And of course that provides a, a nice bit of commercial leverage. Um, but, you know, we may have the freedom to, to access multiple platforms as we've been talking about earlier in this episode. Mm-hmm. But also I think, you know, you'll see people who are increasingly constrained or caught by a platform stuck within one. So that platform citizenship goes both ways. It's both, um, you know, an ability for certain groups to pick and choose, um, you know, premium access, but it's also for others being trapped within, uh, you know, the sort of confines of one service, whatever its state of, of delivery is. Um, well, well, yeah. I mean, I went to a Jesuit university, and the Jesuits say, "If we give us the child by five, and we will have him for the rest of our of his life." And that's also true of the brands that you use by age five. We talk a lot about how you know how children use YouTube, or how children interact with Alexa, or how children interact with with the platforms that they have access to. You know, as Disney streaming becomes a reality, this isn't this is yet another one, right? Um, and Disney has this long history of developing its own physical infrastructure and even developing things like housing developments, like Celebration Florida, uh, and other places like that. They they're, they were among the first to consider not just a media platform platform, but also a physical platform. And I think that eventually you will be able to sort of lock in to these platforms from a very young age and at a time when you might not necessarily be able to to grant informed consent. But that's also true of the citizenship you're born with. You didn't choose where you were going to be born. You didn't choose what your birth certificate was going to look like. Can you say that a little bit louder? They can't hear you in Washington. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think, you know, with all of these, with all of these types of questions, you know, we're, we're talking about, we were talking about it initially from the perspective of being able to choose, of having access to things like, you know, the technology that you use to apply for e-residency, having access to your mm-hmm. own data and records, having a clean access to clean records that show that, you know, you are an acceptable individual 
to be, you know, um, whether it's e-residency or, you know, priority um, security gate access at the airport, um, you know, and an increasing number of people have, you know, multiple accesses, special accesses through, you know, whether it's clear or, or you know. Yeah, TSA pre or next. Yeah, all of those sorts of yeah. things. Um, and then also the, the last piece is that, you know, it presumes you have capital to lubricate movement, uh, which yes. is, yeah. an ex, you know, an extreme privilege in this world today. And I think, you know, the, there is definitely the, uh, the underside of this equation are the lack of access and, and, and sort of legibility of technology, you know, access to data, um, the ability to have the level of authority and autonomy to exercise that data uh mm-hmm. and and then you know be able to 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 do something with it there's a there's a case um some of our listeners may be familiar with the adhar system in india which was um modi's um you know big kind of capstone plan to institute digital id throughout the entire country and it is um and you know creating digital id for a billion plus people and getting it you know rolled out and put in place uh, has been, you know, obviously more difficult than, than the government anticipated. Um, but you see, you know, authentication failures, uh, not just data leaks uh, of, of, you know, the private digital identity, you know, of individuals being bought and sold on, on black markets or being leaked through, you know, poorly implemented technology, but you have basic problems like um, workers who can't authenticate because their fingerprints have been worn down through manual labor. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, weather beaten hands, I think, was the, the you know, one of the causes listed in one of the recent reports I was reading, you know, and, and of course, this affects manual workers, this affects the elderly, you know, all of these, all of these uh, kind of situations where people aren't the optimum user that's preferred by the system. Um, so we have to keep in mind that even though we're seeing these kind of, you know, magical lubricants being developed to get people across borders and, you know, kind of uh, uh, choice access to, to the best services around the world or, or innovative locations, whatever it's going to be, um, the majority of people will see the the other side of those systems. Um, you know, the lock-ins, uh, the, the failures to authenticate, the inability to actually exercise those, um, you know, access to those services and platforms in a way that's in any way meaningful in terms of power or agency for them. Um, so it's going to be an interesting few decades ahead of us, or even probably the next few years, seeing yeah. the kind of parallel development of both sides of this of this issue. Well, yeah, I mean, like I think that those the systems that lock people out in those ways are inherently unjust and problematic, but they are probably also functioning exactly the way they were designed to. Right. The 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 exclusivity is the point. The denial exactly. is the point. And, and you know, when we say, well, this doesn't work for everybody, that doesn't mean that it's not working. It just means that the, that the people who designed it had a very specific goal in mind. So on that uplifting year in note, <laughs> uh, 
Um, I think we should wrap this conversation. Um, we're, we're probably testing the patience of those listening to us, but uh, thanks for joining me for the first, the first of many episodes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, me in Amsterdam, you can probably barely hear fireworks being tested in the distance behind me. Uh, tested. You sl- tested. Um, you slightly earlier in Toronto. Slightly, um, yeah. Both yeah. probably in the dark, <laughs> regardless. Yes, um, yeah, it's very dim here. Yes, but uh, so any any quick things coming up in the next couple of weeks that listeners might be interested in, or things that have just happened, things you've published. Huh, yeah. Um, let's see about that. I have uh, I have a story out now on Slate called "Domestic Violence," um, which is about as cheery as it sounds. Um, about sort of smart homes being used to gaslight people. Um, next month, I have a t- I'm giving a talk on the nature of utopias, uh, but I don't know if that's open to the public or not. Um, but I probably will publish it on my website. So uh, that's, or at least that's what I'm hoping to do. Uh, what else? Um, that's all I can think of at the moment. I think there's a lot of things since it's the beginning of the year. There's a lot of stuff coming up. I know we'll be on the road uh, from mm-hmm. the end of this week for, for a couple of weeks. Um, myself, Susan, uh, and my partner, Susan Cox Smith here at Changest. And um, yeah, we've got a lot of things beginning to unfold for this year. Um, so this episode will be edited and go up forthwith um and uh we definitely want feedback uh this is a a first a first episode with all of its pluses and minuses um but if you're listening on the anchor platform you can actually use the app to leave us a voice message um and we have the option of dragging that into the next episode and actually responding to it um so think of it like calling into a radio show but asynchronous uh, or like an ama you know ask us anything but do keep it clean so we can use it in the episode mm-hmm. um if you enjoyed this please recommend it to your friends or your enemies um yeah. and if you have a topic or a theme you'd like to hear discussed um or uh, a guest we can bring in please give us a tweet at under futures with an s all one word on twitter um and uh, as always if you'd like for us to do this live in your conference room or on stage drop us a line at changes.com forward slash contact and i will be speaking to you uh, in 2019 madeline yes indeed indeed you will and have a good happy new year to all of you and we will see you quite soon thank you thanks This has been Under Futures. Subscribe to Under Futures on Anchor, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Let us know what you think on Twitter at Under Futures, all one word. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at Changist, or find us on medium.com slash phase change. Thanks for listening. <laughs>